Professor Mai An Lee Tran lived and worked in St. Louis, Missouri. Excuse me for one second. In the fall semester of 2014, when Michael Brown, an unarmed African American teenager, was shot and killed by police officers in nearby Ferguson, a suburb, a suburb less than 15 miles from where she lived at the time. She writes that she was not in town the day that Michael Brown was killed. But after she returned from visiting friends in New York, it was the only question on everyone's mind, what to do. And as an Asian American woman, as a person of deep faith, a seminary professor, no less, and as a person who was embedded in this community, for her, she began to grapple with questions of the Incarnation in a new light. She writes that, theologically speaking, we as Christians are eager to trace the form God wears in this material world, and we believe that such discovery of and participation with God in our skin Emmanuel, is what it would take to mend the broken shards of creation. But she writes that this fascination is insufficient because what we need instead, she says, is a gritty kind of faith that helps us not to be flummoxed when confronted with the question, are you going to do something in response to this violence? We find ourselves once again in this season of Advent, which is a time of tension for all of us in the church because we recognize acutely during these four weeks that we are living in the time of now and not yet. Three weeks from today, we will celebrate that miracle of the Incarnation, that event that we cannot possibly begin to understand, how God was wrapped in human flesh and lived as one of us, experiencing life as we do. And it is a joyous celebration, to be sure, but when we look around our world, we realize that it is still not as it should be. The now and the not yet. And today's readings put us in a position where we can specifically explore the question that Professor Tran poses. Are you going to do something in response to this violence? Because you see, the prophet Isaiah lived in violent times. The northern kingdom of Israel had allied itself with the kingdom of Assyria, and together they had laid siege to Jerusalem. And they tried to starve the people of Jerusalem out and overtake the southern kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah lived. But when the siege failed, the king of Assyria was angry and decided to attack his former ally in Israel. And one by one, he started picking off towns and cities, destroying the cities and taking the people who lived there as captives, as prisoners, back to Assyria. 
And the people living down in Jerusalem are hearing about this destruction that's sweeping across their cousins who live in the northern kingdom. And the attitude among them is it's just a matter of time before the king of Assyria comes for us. And Isaiah is given a message to preach to these people in these dark times that is not uplifting. If you read the first part of the book of Isaiah, it is one oracle of judgment after another. Not just for Israel and Judah, but for all of the known world at that time. God's wrath is about to be poured out on humanity in a way that is unimaginable which is why it is odd and noteworthy that in chapter 11 we get this break from doom and gloom and destruction and judgment, and we hear about a hopeful vision of a new reality. What kind of reality is this exactly? Well, the prophet makes it clear that it's one where violence no longer exists. Because it's not just humanity who learns to get along with one another. It's the animal kingdom as well. Predators and prey live together in harmony. The bear and the cow are hanging out with one another and making friends with each other. And children go and play next to the dens of snakes without fear because they know that the snakes who live there pose no threat to them. But most of all, the oracle ends with a statement of protection over God's people. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain. That is Jerusalem. God says my people will be kept safe. So it's worth asking, how does this revolution of peace begin? And Isaiah's answer is not what we would expect. It's not in a better military or a stronger kingdom It's not in the good old days of the tree of the Davidic dynasty. In fact, in Isaiah's vision, that tree has been cut down. This hopeful vision of a new reality begins with the unlikeliest of sources, a tiny shoot growing out of a place that seemed to have been destroyed. Because it's not the size of the tree that you can see, as Isaiah tells us, that's important. It's what you can't see. It's the foundation. It's the rootedness. And it's from this deep well of God's power that something miraculous will eventually come. And I believe that this is a similar message to what we hear in the words of another prophet. Centuries later, John the Baptist Because New Testament uh, historian John Dominic Crossan writes that John's position at the the Jordan Jordan River was strategic. You see, this was the entry point for the people of Israel after the Exodus. After wandering in the wilderness for generations, they come into the land of promise through this river. But in John's day, We don't see millions of people crossing the river as a united front. We see a handful of curious folks going out into the middle of nowhere to listen to a guy preach a message about God's kingdom, and he he wears strange clothing. 
a crude garment of camel hair, and his diet would make most of us ill. But they go to listen to him because he's saying something different. And as they go into this water and come out, nothing about their situation has changed. They are still living in occupied Judea. The Romans, with all of their soldiers, are still there, creating a system of taxation and oppression that makes the people furious. And every time they revolt, first hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands are killed by their Roman occupiers in response. Their situation has not changed, but their relationship to that power has changed. And lest you think this small, curious group of believers is overlooked, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of their days, are out there to see what this is all about. They have heard about what John is doing, and they go to investigate they come seeking baptism, but John refuses to baptize them and scolds them instead, which is not what we would expect from John the Baptist. So why does that happen? As with Isaiah, it goes back to the cultural moment because the Romans are in charge. They're the occupiers. They're the military force, but that's not where the story ends because the Pharisees chose to make an alliance with Herod, who is the puppet king who is held up by the Roman emperor. They are essentially working with and for Herod and the Roman government and working against the people whose spiritual care is their job, is their responsibility. They have chosen to ally themselves with power and might and influence at the expense of the people. So when John sees them coming and tells them that they are a brood of vipers, he is leveling against them one of the most vulgar insults that existed in the world at that time. Because the thing about vipers is this. Mother vipers don't lay eggs like many other snakes do. They carry the eggs inside of themselves to keep them warm. And when the babies are ready to be born, the eggs kind of dissolve and the babies come out through the mother's body in a process that looks violent and deadly. And in fact, that's what most of the Greek and Roman scholars of the day believed, that this process of birth killed the mother viper. So to call someone a brood of vipers was to literally say, you have attained your life in this world by taking the life of the thing that brought you here. You have created death for your own prosperity in the worst possible way by killing your own mother. So when John the Baptist sees them coming and tells them that they are a brood of vipers, he is saying, you have killed the thing which has given you life. You have separated yourself from the heritage of Abraham and the Jewish people that you cling to so desperately for legitimacy because your true mother is the power and the wealth and the influence that you seek. You have abandoned your principles and you are now an enemy of the people. And that heritage that you cling to so falsely no longer matters because in God's future, these stones laying here on the ground will become children of Abraham. God doesn't need you 
or your heritage. What God needs is relationship. And so John gives us this vision of God's kingdom that is relational. It is not based on your heredity. It is not based on your parentage. It is based on seeking God. Seeking to do what is right. And in God's coming future, the vision we get from Isaiah is peace, unity, togetherness born of relationship with one another. So during this season of Advent, we do watch and wait and pray for this second Advent, this coming of God's kingdom of peace. But we also work because there's this detail in Isaiah about this impossible new life that springs from this shoot that we often overlook, because this new leader of this brave remnant will have a new spirit, the spirit of the Lord, and that spirit will give to this leader the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, but it's the basis for a prayer that has been prayed over Christians for thousands of years, for hundreds of generations, over billions of Christians at the moment of their baptism. And we pray a highly translated version of this prayer over every newly baptized person. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by water and the Holy Spirit, you have bestowed upon these your servants the forgiveness of sin and have raised them to the new life of grace. And here it is. Sustain them, O Lord, in your Holy Spirit. Give them an inquiring and discerning heart, the courage to will and to persevere, a spirit to know and to love you, and the gift of joy and wonder in all your works. We are inheritors of that same spirit, my friends. We are part of that remnant. We are rooted in that shoot from the stump of Jesse. By virtue of our baptism, we are called and commissioned to work for God's kingdom of justice and peace in this world. And when we end each service, we affirm this over and over because the last thing we pray is that we will be sent into the world in peace with strength and courage to love and to serve you with gladness and singleness of heart because we are partakers. We are members of that shoot that is too stubborn to give in and too resilient to give up. But as Professor Tran reminds us, we have work to do because we live in a world that continues to be plagued by violence. It is hard to imagine a place where the lamb and the wolf will live together in harmony, much less a place where people can even be courteous to one another right now. Our task is large, my friends. We live in a world where people are in constant fear because of their race or their gender or their sexuality or their nationality. It's not always safe. And amid all of this fear and uncertainty against this culture of violence, 
We are not so different from a small shoot sprouting out of something that appears dead or a small band of believers curious to see what this prophet in the middle of the desert has to say. We have work to do, my friends, and I know for some of you, the thought of doing work might be hard right now because the violence hits a little too close to home. You are exhausted, afraid, threatened. So I want you to know something. You're not alone in this. We are called to work, but we're not called to work alone. We are in this together. And we see you, and we love you, and we uphold you with our prayers. So this Advent, we do pray for our world, and we watch for the new Advent of God's coming kingdom of peace. And we pray also for ourselves, that the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, would compel us to live together as brave examples of the peace we long for in God's coming kingdom.